It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Abby Hornacek. This is Tucker Carlson. And I'm Jessica Tarlov. This is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, August 15th, 2022. I'm Dana Perino. Closed schools and remote learning due to the pandemic worsened America's education crisis. And there is now a national effort to get kids back on track. If we don't fix this and fix it quickly, our incarceration rates will go up, crime will go up, taxes go up. Um, Let's talk about mental health rates. I'm Chris Foster. Gabby Petito's family is suing the police over her murder last summer. Nancy Grace says they may have a point. If they had intervened then and treated her as a domestic violence victim, she may still be alive today. That did not happen. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Grant. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The pandemic disrupted lives all over the world. The social and economic impact will be felt for generations. But in many ways, children bore the brunt of the lockdowns the coronavirus caused, as many were forced to stay home and learn remotely for months on end. Now, teachers and parents are forced to cope with the consequences. Even before COVID, test scores in both reading and math were declining. Closed schools and hybrid learning models exacerbated the problem and caused what is now called COVID learning loss. There is now a national effort to reverse the damage done and catch students up on the basic skills they will need to live happy, productive lives. President Biden has praised the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan for addressing the problem. However, according to the Wall Street Journal, as of this May, school districts have only spent 7% of the $122 billion set aside for education in that bill. While unclear what local administrators will do, there are some organizations taking action. Enriched, a literacy education program for children in nursery through 12th grade, was launched in August 2020 to help students overcome academic disruption of the pandemic. We are virtually all over the country working to help children learn to read, essentially. You know, we've had a problem with literacy starting long before the COVID pandemic. Mary Cantwell and Brooke Uten are the co-founders of Enriched. People right now are really focused on the learning loss related to COVID. Well, actually, reading scores in this country have been stagnant or on the decline for the last 20 to 30 years in this country. And there's many different reasons for that. You know, we have overcrowding in public schools. Um, We've had a move towards something called balanced literacy and away from structured literacy or the science of reading. Um, You know, basically that just in a nutshell, the difference there is that a structured approach to literacy Um, uses phonics to build the foundational skills of a student. And then from there, once a student learns how to read, they can then start to embrace literature and start to have higher comprehension and things like that. Um, Our country over the last 20, 30 years has moved away from that into something called balanced literacy. And balanced literacy is just sort of the notion that if you hand a child a book, they can look at the pictures, look at the first letter of a word, make a guess at that word and, um, and read. And what we've learned, sadly, is that children need to learn how to read in an explicit way. So, um, you know, we're looking at statistics, you know, like we were just listening to a podcast um, in New Haven. Um, 
more than half the children are not on grade level in kindergarten through third grade. And that's why the state of Connecticut is now examining their approach to literacy and this idea of balanced literacy versus science of reading. It's so interesting because I would have no idea how to teach someone how to read. But the way you're describing that here, I can't imagine anyone being able to succeed without the phonics part. You absolutely need the phonics part. And it's really interesting that only, I think the percentage is like 10 to 15% of children can pick up, quote unquote, pick up reading. But that means that, you know, 80 to 85% of students need the direct instruction. They need that explicit instruction. And sadly, um, you know, further statistics support that um, by the time you get to fourth grade, if you're not proficiently reading, you will pretty much stay in or around the same reading level all the way through eighth grade. Um, which is pretty terrifying because I think many parents believe that it's developmental. My child can't do this. Well, it's developmental. They're going to outgrow it. That's just a normal parental reaction. Sadly, with reading, they will go to college and still be a deficient, potentially a deficient reader. The average college freshman can go in with 19,000 words up to 200,000 words in terms of their um, depth of their vocabulary. You don't want to be the person walking into the your freshman class in college with 19,000 words if somebody in the room has 200,000 words. Right. I mean, just you're, the deck is stacked against you in that, in that scenario. Mary, could you tell me then, um, what are the statistics like for the long term for that individual and then collectively for us as a country, statistically, if you have this problem that seems ridiculously widespread in the United States of America, where people aren't able to read, but they're still being passed up through the grades. Yeah, Dana, ridiculously widespread is such a good way to put it because it really is. I mean, 14% of adult Americans cannot read or comprehend well enough to fill out a basic job application. You know, like what ends up happening to these people? Well, your involvement with the American criminal justice system is directly correlated to how well you can read. So if we don't fix this and fix it quickly, our incarceration rates will go up, crime will go up, taxes go up. Um, let's talk about mental health rates. Um, our health care system is affected. I mean, you may be sitting at home thinking, gosh, this won't affect me. I'm you know, my children are in X, Y and Z private schools. I'm able to afford this type of tutoring and remediation. But this affects every single American. And as Brooke said, if we don't fix this quickly by the third or fourth grade, if you are not caught up, studies show you will never catch up. And then is, we have a whole generation of illiteracy. Is this widespread across America in terms of inner cities and rural areas? From what we are seeing, Dana, and we are virtually and in person pretty much all over the country, yes, every child has suffered some type of COVID learning loss. But as Brooke touched upon, we are in a decline in our math and reading scores for the last 30 years. I mean, there was a study done in the year 2000 in America that said we need to adapt the science of reading right away. And here we are, you know, 22 years later, still having the same debate because, you know, we can only guess at it. You know, we the Wall Street Journal came out today with an amazing article on the American Rescue Plan and how 
as of May, only 7% of those billions of dollars has actually been spent by school districts to help children learn how to read. 7% of billions of dollars. It's, we are failing the children in this country. You're talking about an op-ed written by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. It was in the Wall Street Journal, and he has a proposal that some of those unspent funds, if they're not going to be spent, then they should be reallocated to the parents or the students who need the help. Now, that is a fabulous idea and one that would make so much sense. And perhaps I can get through because I think Americans were quite generous in the pandemic of saying, we recognize that we're going to need to help schools. When you are traveling around across the country and some of these school districts are rethinking how they are approaching reading, are they willing then to put in some resources to hire somebody like yourselves and try a different approach? Do you see some willingness and flexibility there? I think they talk the talk, a lot of them, in terms of walking the walk. It's a different story, Dana. Like they are all sort of disagreeing or arguing over the balanced literacy approach that Brooke mentioned and this science of reading phonics based approach that we know works. We've tried it with underserved communities in Bellevue, Idaho, with first graders who are not native English speakers when we met them. They didn't know what a letter was or that a letter made a sound. They were in first grade after 20 weeks of this direct phonics approach. They're all reading on grade level. So I think school districts want to help the children. At least I hope they do. But in terms of really coming together and working together, we just don't see it. And this is why only 7% of the money has been spent. One thing I wanted to ask you was we have this renewed interest in education from parents all across America because we saw that because of COVID. Um, We saw the whole thing with the Justice Department and the letter about domestic terrorists that got pulled back. Um, So there's a moment right now where a lot of people are like, wait, what's happening in education? And let's focus. And parents are letting their feelings be known. Is there something happening, Mary, in the education um, space that we're not paying attention to. Maybe it is literacy. I'm not sure. I I always like to ask ask that question of like, what what are we missing? What do you wish people could know today? Yeah, such a great question. And I'm not sure if we're actually missing it because I think people are very aware of this and speaking about it. They just don't know how to fix it. Teachers. Teachers are overwhelmed. Um, A a recent study tells us that over 50% of American teachers are considering resigning or considered resigning in the past year. I think the shooting exacerbated that. I mean, could you imagine what will happen to our schools if 50% of our workforce walk off the job? So I think people are talking about this. However, real solutions have not come forth. Uh, People are not young. People are not choosing teaching any longer as a profession. Um, Teachers are feeling disrespected. They have more and more been the target of violence, of physical, verbal abuse in their classrooms throughout the country. Teachers are overwhelmed. Classes, class sizes are too big and they cannot teach. And we always say this, teachers wanna teach and children wanna learn. How have we not figured this out yet? 
there's also the pressure right now on teachers to make up for two years of learning loss. And so teachers were told this year, okay, so you need to teach 18 months of material in nine months. And that is very, very stressful and overwhelming to teachers. Um, and, and a lot of them just can't take the pressure. I mean, anecdotally, we interview teachers every day for, to work for us. And um, that's what we're hearing. More and more of them want to get out of the classroom. They're saying, we just, we can't take the pressure anymore. There, people are disappointed in everything we do. So there's a lot of sort of the push and pull with the teacher unions and, and sort of political dynamics going on behind the scenes um, that are causing a lot of turmoil in, uh, in terms of staffing in schools. Well, it's been a real pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. I, I believe this will not be the last time that we have a chance to talk. I'm very impressed and I'm glad that we can bring this to more people. I would leave everybody with knowing that my co-host, Greg Gutfeld on The Five, one time on Facebook Friday, a question was posed to us by a viewer. What did you like to play the first day after school was out in the summer? And I said, school, <laughs> because that's how much I loved it. And I love reading and has completely enriched my life. I wouldn't be where I am today without it. And so this is an important message. And thank you both and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Dana. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. This is Dr. Rebecca Grant with your Fox News commentary coming up. Gabby Petito was murdered by her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, a year ago this month. They were on a cross-country road trip. Her body was found last September at a campground in Wyoming. He was found dead in October in a Florida nature reserve of a self-inflicted gunshot wound with a written confession found in a notebook with him. A couple weeks before Gabby's death, last August 12th, Gabby and Brian were seen fighting, then pulled over by police in Moab, Utah. She was crying. They talked about a fight. Did he hit you, though? I mean, I mean, it's okay if you're saying you hit him, and then I, I understand if he hit you, but we want to know the truth if he actually hit you. Because oh, you know, I guess, yeah, but I him first. Where did he hit you? Don't, don't worry, just well, be honest. Right my face, like, I guess. Officers didn't take anyone into custody and had them just split up for the night. Now Gabby Petito's family is suing the Moab Police Department for $50 million, saying they should have done more. Moab Police actually pulled over Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito while they were on their cross-country, I like to say RV trip, but they were actually in her van. Nancy Grace has been covering crime on TV for 26 years now. You can see her on Fox and in special streaming on Fox Nation. They pulled them over because they saw erratic driving, according to Moab Police. When they pulled them over, there were classic symptoms on the part of Gabby Petito indicating she was a domestic violence victim. Instead of treating her like the victim, they take extensive photos of the boyfriend we now know murdered her, Brian Laundrie, extensive photos of his so-called injuries, and treated him like the victim, put him up in a hotel for the night, and left her to what? Sleep in the car, I guess? I mean, it was completely bass backwards. If they had intervened then and treated her as a domestic violence victim, she may still be alive today. That did not happen. They launched their Moab police, launched their own investigation, and they determined that the cops did not follow correct policy, but that it, quote, probably wouldn't have made a difference anyway, is the way I understand the report, that ultimately Laundry 
would have murdered Gabby Petito. I disagree. There's no way we can know that. And frankly, that is not the standard by which we are to judge our duty as crime fighters. Do we know what Gabby told the cops? I know there's body camera footage. Do we know what Gabby told the cops at the time that led them to say, all right, this is just a couple of stressed kids on this on this road trip. Everybody cool off and just you know spend the night apart and come back tomorrow. Yes, I do. As is common, having prosecuted domestic homicides, domestic aggravated assaults for over a decade, and working at the Battered Women's Center as a volunteer, Gabby was trying to take blame and deform blame from Brian Laundry. That's what happens in domestic assaults. The woman, typically a woman victim, sometimes a man, but more often a woman, she said things like, well, you know, it's my fault. You know, I started it. I hit him first. Well, that's not exactly correct. He was the one trying to lock her out of her van and leave her stranded and take her cell phone out in the middle of nowhere. I've seen that a hundred times. The husband will, or partner, or boyfriend, live-in, ex, yank the phone cord out of the wall, isolate the woman. Is there a difference from department to department policy-wise, and maybe jurisdiction from jurisdiction legally, where the cops have a duty, no matter what the woman says, or the possible abuse victim says, I don't care that you say it was your fault, um, I don't care that you're not in the emergency room, the cops have a duty to lock the, in their mind, suspect up? Yes. Not necessarily put him away, but for instance, in this case, he got sent to a hotel, and she was allowed, because of the way they classified her as the perp, he had, guess what, had to go sleep on the side of the road in the van. And she didn't get any counseling, he didn't get any counseling. I mean, it it was just a recipe for disaster. Women are afraid of retaliation when the person gets back out of jail. They very often don't have the finances to support themselves and their children. There's a million reasons why they act the way they do. Doesn't matter. She's dead. And if Moab police had acted as they should have, she might still be alive. Do you think there's a sense, is there sexism in some cases like this where, oh, she's just hysterical. She's, she's just, she's being emotional. So there's nothing, there's not much more to it. You're making my throat tighten up. I feel like I swallowed a lump of coal. Thank you. Yes. You know, I see it so many times. And so often I hear police investigators say, oh, she's not hurt. She's not in any danger. She just went on a walkabout. She just wanted to cool off. She needed space. She probably left her children to go be with her secret boyfriend. All the reasons to negate a woman's outcry. And yes. It is sexist, and it is wrong, and mothers, daughters, sisters end up dead because of it, because their outcry is not taken seriously. Nancy, let me pivot to one of your many new Fox Nation specials uh, in the pipeline, or out now, uh, Teacher Death Mystery, a Nancy Gray's investigation. Um, We're talking about the, well, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, the suicide of Ellen Greenberg. She was this school teacher in a Philadelphia suburb. I'm glad you told me you're doing air quotes. (laughs) I'm calling it the bride-to-be stabbing mystery. Because that is more evocative in my mind about what happened, and this was no suicide. Please, stop. Over 20 stab wounds, and it's a suicide, including stab wounds to the back and the spine and the head. No, that is 
total BS. That's a technical legal term. Ellen Greenberg did not stab herself over 20 times in the 40 minutes her fiancé, Sam Goldberg, went to go work out in the apartment gym. That didn't happen. People can watch the special to get more details about the case. In it, you also break down her fiancé, Sam Goldberg's 911 call. Fiancé is on the floor with blood everywhere. My, my, I, just, my, I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was lashed. My fiancé is inside. She wasn't, she wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. Like she's, not, she's not responding. Willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can... I, I, I have to, right? Now, you found some parts of that call suspicious. Yeah, like one when the 911 dispatch says start CPR, and he goes, I guess I have to, right? I mean, really? But, you know, if I bring something up like that at trial, the defense would light right into me, and I understand why. They'll say that means absolutely nothing. But you do have to look at the timeline. There was a blizzard outside. Who's going to break in? The roads were impassable. She had to come home from work that day where she teaches school and then frantically call all the teachers, she's so dedicated, to all the students in her class to make sure they all got home okay. She was in the kitchen making a fruit salad. And then what? Suddenly decides, oh, I'm going to kill myself and stab myself 20 times. That is insane. And then in the 40-minute window that he's gone, Somehow somebody fights through a blizzard, breaks in, murders her, and leaves without a trace? No, that's not what happened. First, it was deemed a homicide. Then, for some reason, after a meeting with law enforcement, the medical examiner changed it to suicide. And here's the big thing to me. It's newly been reported that from a couple of her stab wounds to her head, that there was no hemorrhage. What does that mean? There was no bleeding. What does that mean? She was stabbed post-mortem. After, after she's killed, her heart is no longer pumping, and those wounds don't bleed. That is forensic proof she was stabbed post-mortem, after death, when the killer didn't realize she was dead yet. How do you stab yourself in the back of the neck? How does that happen? The no bleeding from the wounds. But what is really bothering me, is clearly a homicide, is that someone thought it was okay to name it a suicide and close the case. I've met with Ellen's parents. They have been through pure hell. They haven't given up. They want this case reopened and to go to a full-on investigation, a homicide investigation, and a trial. A bigger picture to me is not just the murder, but how in our government did someone go along with changing the medical examiner's report to suicide? Yeah, and this happened, I mean, we should have said it up front, this happened in, what, 2011, I guess? Is that right? Yes. Okay, so yes. what, I mean, I only, I only know what I know about the case from what, you know, what, what I'm seeing in your special about the case and what I'm reading about the case. What's the rationale? Why is somebody saying this was a suicide? Is there, is there any rationale like, hey, here's why we think this is? Why do you think it was no, changed? No, there is not. Oh, yeah, 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 there is. This is their rationale. Cops say they deemed it suicide because the boyfriend, the fiance, said the apartment was locked from the inside, and he broke the door down. He had to break the door down to get in. That's why they're saying it was a suicide. In my mind, the medical forensic evidence clearly shows this was no suicide. Can I tell you one more thing? Please. I've looked at the autopsy. I've even done a reenactment with our friend, 
Jen Scott Morgan, death investigator at Jacksonville State University. We completely did a recreation of the apartment, the whole thing. Hold on. Hey, are you right-handed or left-handed? Left. Okay, you're lefty. Mm -hmm. Ellen was a righty, and the mortal wound was her, according to the medical examiner, she's right-handed, with her left hand stabbing herself in the heart. And that would be, ladies, about where your bra strap is. With her left hand stabbing herself in the left bra strap. No, that did not happen. I'm trying to do it. I don't think I can. That did not happen. So um, Mr. Greenberg here has just been walking around for the last 11 years. Um, Do we know what what he's... Yes, he has. He's remarried. He got married. He got engaged, I believe, the following August. And I got to tell you something. I went to the cemetery where Ellen is buried and her parents went with me and they were in so much pain they could hardly stay there it was like the ground was burning their feet they said we we can't stand it we don't come here Ellen's not supposed to be here Ellen is not supposed to be here I can't look at her they could not look at her grave but she's not supposed to be here I mean just remembering it right now is giving chills all right. Well, we'll see if anything um, comes of comes of your investigation and maybe a little more public outcry about the case. This one's called Teacher Death Mystery, a Nancy Grace investigation that's streaming now on Fox Nation. Nancy, always good to talk to you. We'll do it again soon. Bye, dear. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. Jury selection begins in Chicago for R. Kelly's trial on sex crimes and child pornography. He's already serving 30 years in prison for sex trafficking and racketeering convictions in New York. Tuesday. Primary in Wyoming, where incumbent Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney faces Trump-endorsed Harriet Hagerman. In Alaska, voters will decide which of three candidates will fill the vacant congressional seat of the late Republican Don Young through the end of the year. Voters will decide in November which candidate will serve after that. Wednesday. Many theaters across the country will be bringing back a classic. Special screenings are planned to mark 35 years since the premiere of Dirty Dancing. Thursday. NASA rolls out the Artemis 1 rocket and Orion spacecraft to its launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. The unmanned capsule could make its first uncrewed mission to the moon later this month. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Rebecca Grant. What's on your mind? One year ago, Joe Biden handed Kabul back to the Taliban. Yes, the same faction that ran Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 and gave Osama bin Laden safe harbor and terrorist training camps. Two tense and terrible weeks ensued as the United States Air Force lifted over 124,000 Afghanis out of the country and 13 young U.S. service members were killed at the airport gate. Biden will never live down this disaster. 
Almost 800,000 Americans served in Afghanistan over 20 years, and it left several that I know wondering what all their hard work and sacrifices had been for. The American people took it hard. That's when Biden's job approval plummeted, and it's never recovered. To me, it's still a mystery why Biden ignored military advice. The peace deal plan was to keep 2,500 troops and custody of Bagram Air Base, where the U.S. made major improvements, including opening a second runway. Yet Biden backed out. He told us there were no more al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, not true, and said he didn't want U.S. military forces bogged down. Strategically, the fall of Kabul was a blow. It showed Biden to be a clumsy commander-in-chief and left America's enemies more eager to gamble on Biden's weakness. Russia and China watched closely as a small Taliban unit literally walked into the presidential palace while American forces stood by. Hmm, thought Vladimir Putin. That looked easy. I'm convinced the swift fall of Kabul and the disarray in the Biden administration encouraged Putin to try to take Kiev. Nothing has compensated, not even the July 30th drone strike that took out a top al-Qaeda leader at his apartment in Kabul. That took superb intelligence, but one drone strike does not excuse Biden's weakness in the Kabul crisis. Back in Afghanistan, Taliban rule is appalling for women. Burkas, work and travel restrictions, no education for girls over 12. Afghanistan itself is an economic wreck. Did you know that $774 million of your tax dollars went for foreign aid to Afghanistan after Kabul fell? That's on top of the $85 billion in military equipment sent over the years. Guess what's easy to get in Kabul? Chinese food. China began mining rare earth minerals in Afghanistan in 2007, and they've picked up the pace. Vanity Fair journalist Peter Von Egmel was in Kabul this summer and found his hotel filled with Chinese miners. They brought a cook with them, so he ate Chinese food. The Americans are gone, he said, and the Chinese are rapidly filling the void. I'm Rebecca Grant for Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.